Amen. Well, good morning. This is Communion Sunday for us. We have communion together every once a month, every last Sunday of the month, and we are between series. If you're a guest with us, we normally just go book by book, passage by passage through the Bible, but since we're between series, I wanted us to take some time and think about the story of the Lamb, especially as we lead into communion. And this will be a different kind of sermon than normal. In fact, it'll be a lot of scripture reading, which is a good thing because 1 Timothy 4.13 commands us to devote ourselves to the public reading of scripture. So we'll do a lot of that today as we think about this story, the story of the Lamb. And of course, like all good stories, it begins at the beginning. God creates mankind, and he creates mankind in his own image, and he has the Garden of Eden there, and it's an ocean of yeses, and there's one no that God gives to mankind in the Garden of Eden, and that is, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it's not that God didn't want them to know what the differences were between good and evil. It was that God decided he would be the one to determine what was good and what was evil, what was right. And what was wrong? And if they did eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God says, you will surely die. If you disobey me, in this ocean of yeses, there's one no. If you disobey me, you will surely die. And of course, as we know, Adam and Eve thought they knew better. They heard the word and they doubted God's word and they doubted God's goodness. They thought they knew better and they believed the lie that God was not good and that his word was not true. And the enemy comes in and the enemy questions God's word and he says, did God actually say? And then he says in flat contradiction to what God has said, you will not surely die is what the enemy says. And so Adam and Eve follow the word of Satan. They trust themselves rather than the God and they disobey, disobey their creator. And we in the church call this the fall. But that's really kind of soft, honestly. It should be the tragedy the cosmic tragedy. They were called to guard and keep the Garden of Eden and even expand God's presence in the Garden of Eden. That was to be their sacred task. And what happens instead? They're kicked out of it and they're guarded from it. Remember, God put seraphim there to guard the Garden of Eden from the people who were supposed to guard it. It is a tragedy. They are kept from God's presence. And the reason is God is the holy creator. He cannot dwell with sin. And so when sin enters the world, they are expelled. Here's how Psalm 5, 4 puts it. Evil may not dwell with you because he's holy. Habakkuk 1 says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. And so when the holy God meets sinful people, the consequence is judgment. The consequence is wrath. But remember, if you know the story, Adam and Eve don't die, do they? At least not immediately. We would think that as soon as they took the apple, they would die. But they actually don't because God is holy, but he's also a God of grace. And so they don't die immediately. Instead, they become ashamed do you remember they were together, all was good, total relational harmony with their creator, with one another in the first marriage and with, their, with the created order. Sin comes in and all of a sudden they become ashamed. Before they were naked and unashamed. All was good. But now that sin enters the world, all of a sudden they realize their nakedness and they become ashamed. And what do they do? They try to cover their shame. Do you remember what they used? Leafs, fig leaves to try to cover their shame. Well, remember that in grace... 
God provides something better than fig leaves. He provides animal skins. First clothing to cover their shame, which of course means something had to die to cover the shame of Adam and Eve. The text here in Genesis 1 doesn't say, Genesis 3, it doesn't say that it was a lamb specifically, but blood was shed for the first time to cover the shame of the first couple. And so we can think of this story first as a lamb for the first couple. Because as the author of Hebrews would say many centuries later, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Here's how Genesis 3, if you want to open your Bible there, Genesis 3 verse 21, and we'll just turn to a few passages in Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Genesis 3:21 says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So God himself must provide the covering, which is a sign both of their shame but also of God's grace. This, again, would have been the first time that the first couple would have ever seen death. They were supposed to die. That's what the judgment was. But instead, this animal dies to cover their shame. An innocent lamb in the place of guilty sinners and They would see at the very first chapters of the Bible this principle of substitution, which in many ways is the theme of Scripture. They were supposed to die. Instead, an animal dies in their place to cover their shame. And they would clearly see, though, that an animal is not equivalent. An animal is not equivalent to a human. Adam had already seen that when he was looking at all the animals and found no helper for him. He knew that they were were a lower level of created being. And so perhaps Adam asked the question, where's the true lamb? For the offering to cover our shame. And the answer is that God himself will provide the lamb in his own time. And so moving along in the story, God curses the serpent. And he says that the woman will have this offspring that will crush the head of the serpent. The idea is that there is going to be a man that will be born who will defeat evil. Genesis 3.15. And the offspring of Eve will crush the offspring of the serpent. And so Adam and Eve get together and have a child, and they think it's the one, which they should. They think, okay, this is the one. Everything's going to get better. We're going to go back to Eden through this first son. And so we read in Genesis 4.1, with the help of the Lord, Eve says, I've brought forth a man. She thought that Cain would be the one to defeat the enemy. And then Cain and Abel bring offerings to the Lord. Cain, a plant, but Abel, a sheep. And if you remember, the Lord had regard for Abel's offering. But as you know, he wasn't the one to defeat evil. In fact, he just perpetuates the curse because Cain kills his brother Abel. And the pattern of sin continues until God finally judges the whole world. And he could have been done. God would have been totally fair and just and right to be done with humanity. But instead, he chooses one couple and produces a new start. Even though mankind was totally evil, totally wicked. In fact, look at Genesis 8.20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. So because of our sin, sacrifice has to be made. 
The word is atonement. We were separated. There was hostility. God brings atonement at one minute. And so God preserves the human race and has a fresh start. Noah becomes a new Adam and is given the same commission as Adam was in Genesis 1. We see that in the first verse of chapter 9. Genesis 9.1, then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. So we have a fresh start in Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9. And then we fast forward a few, few chapters in the story and we come to Genesis chapter 12. One of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. And you have this guy named Abram. We know him as Abraham. And Abram was a total pagan. He was a moon worshiper and God in grace calls him forward. And he makes some of the grandest promises in all of scripture. Look at Genesis 12 verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's an amazing promise. All the peoples of the world will receive blessing through the family of Abraham. God's going to bless Abraham's offspring and through them bring blessing to the whole cosmos. There's one minor problem. There was no offspring. Abraham had no offspring. So how's that going to work? How is his family going to multiply if he has no family? Well, maybe you remember Sarai tries to take things into her own hands and tries to produce offspring. But God says it's not going to be Ishmael. It's going to be Isaac. And Abram's name is changed to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah. He was 100 and she was 90. Turn over to Genesis 18, verse 9. Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. And then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Again, she's 90 years old. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind them. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure And then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, and so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. (laughs) Did not, did too, did not. And so just as God said, though, Sarah gives birth to Isaac about a year later. And through now, Isaac, God will multiply the offspring of Abraham. And all is well. All is moving forward until one day God decides to test Abraham. Isaac is the promised child. It is now through Isaac that all the family will grow and all the blessings will be cast upon the nations through Isaac. But God says, Abraham, take your son Isaac and sacrifice him to test his faith. Sacrifice the one through whom all their hope was on. And so he asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah, which by the way is the place the temple would later be built on. So how could God multiply multiply the family of Abraham if he had no family? This is the question. And so they start the journey, and the journey would take three days. 
up the top of the mountain. And Abraham gathers what he needs, and Isaac notices something is missing. Look at Genesis chapter 22. Verse 7. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father. Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And that is the question. That is the question that will be repeated for centuries. Where is the lamb for the offering? And the answer is that God will provide in his own time. Look at verse 8. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. And he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hands and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. And he went over and he took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Saw a lamb for the first couple. Now we see a ram in the place of a man. Verse 14, so Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And so God provides an innocent ram to take the place, to die in the place of Isaac, again, we have substitution, substitutionary atonement. And so we've seen a lamb for the first couple, a ram for a man, and now we move along the story of Scripture and we see a lamb in place of a family. Abraham's family continues to grow and grow and grow. So we have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Then you have the 12 sons and and God raises up one of those sons. His name's Joseph and God gives him favor in pagan Egypt. And so he ends up rescuing his family and all is going well until there's a new Pharaoh who begins to punish Abraham's family, Israel, as slaves. And so they begin to pray and to cry out and God picks a man named Moses. He's going to redeem his people, free his people through this man named Moses. And he's going to do so by sending terrible, terrible plagues to Egypt. And Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And so there's the first plague and the second and third, all the way to the final plague, the 10th and final. And it was the last straw. And it was what God would use to free his people, what he calls to free my firstborn son. And so it's the death of the firstborn. Every firstborn son in Egypt would be slain. And in Exodus 11, God tells Moses that at midnight, he's going to go in judgment through every household in Egypt and every firstborn son will die. This is about as severe as judgment as one can imagine. But God's going to save his people through it. He's going to save the family of Abraham. So he tells his people to take a lamb on the 10th day of the month, an unblemished lamb that was one year old, and all of Israel was to slay the lamb and take this plant and put it on this wooden pole and douse it in the blood of the lamb and then paint their doorposts with the blood and paint their lintels with 
the blood. And so when the angel of death comes to judge all of Egypt, the angel of death would pass over those homes that had the blood of the lamb on the door. Again, we see the principle of substitution. A lamb in place of the family. We had an animal for covering in the garden. We had a ram in the thicket, and now we have the blood of the lamb on the house. And they were to eat the lamb after the blood, and they had specific instructions, and they were told to eat and be ready. And in Exodus chapter 12, we read this. Exodus 12, verse 11. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belts, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hands. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. The Lord says, when I see the blood, I will pass over. The shed blood of the innocent lamb was to be their source of protection from judgment. The shed blood of the lamb is taking the place of the Israelite family. And this would have been a hard day. One of the hardest days in history, but even for the Israelite family, often they were poor, they were slaves, and so to have an unblemished lamb was a very valuable thing, and often it would be a treasured possession. I can just think of many pet lambs, and so you would have children, no, we can't do this, not to the pet lamb, and so fathers would have to have hard conversations telling their children, it's either this lamb will die or you will die, son. And so again, the principle of substitution is ingrained in the family of Abraham. The lamb dies rather than the son. The lamb dies in place of the son. And so God makes good on his promise and he, he frees his people from Egypt. And all of the firstborn of Egypt are slain. It would have been horrific. And it's enough to finally, the Pharaoh says, fine, go. And he goes and God frees his people, the crossing of the Red Sea. And then he constitutes them as a nation in Exodus 19 and 20. And they are given the law to give cohesion to the nation. And they continue in sin all the way through they're constantly sinful so how does a holy god dwell with sinful people through sacrifice and so there's that one book some of you probably tried to start reading through the bible this year you probably already petered out about this time because you hit the book of leviticus in leviticus you have all sorts of instructions regarding the priesthood and the sacrifice and in chapter 16 we learn of the capstone the most important sacrifice So we've seen the lamb for the first couple, a lamb for a man, a lamb for a family, and now we see a lamb for the nation. It's goats, to be precise. Two of them, and it's Leviticus 16, which we know as Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonements. Leviticus 17, 11 says, The life of a creature is in the blood, and I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood of that makes atonement for one's life. Christianity is a bloody religion. And we're going to see why by the time we're done. But there are often authors now wanting to remove the blood, remove the violence, remove the sacrifice from the Christian faith. And when we do that, we lose the Christian faith. 
Aaron is told to sacrifice a bull for his own sins because he himself, even though he's the high priest, he's a sinner, and so he has to sacrifice the bull first for his own sins, and then he's given two goats, and one goat is to be a sin offering for the people. Their sin on this goat, and so the goat dies in their place. Again, substitutionary atonement. And Aaron was to take blood of that goat and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, which was the top of the altar where the law was found. And so you had this box, and the top is the mercy seat. And for, in order to appease God's wrath, because he's holy and they are sinful, blood is to be sprinkled on the top of that mercy seat. That is the first goat, a goat for the sins of the people. But there's another goat. And so Aaron was to take this goat and, and grab it by its horns and confess the sins of Abraham's family onto this goat. Symbolically, the goat then would take those sins away and the goat would be sent off into the wilderness. That's where we get our word scapegoat. All the sins confessed on that goat and gone. Leviticus 16.30 says, because on this day, atonements will be made for you to cleanse you. And then before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. And so the Day of Atonement, every year, one of the most significant days in the life of Abraham's family. But surely the people of Israel knew, this is just a goat. This isn't sufficient. It's two unwilling goats. One goat unwillingly sacrificed for our sins. Another goat unwillingly sent off into the wilderness. Surely something more and greater is needed. And they would be asking, where is the Lamb of God? And as Abraham said, God will provide. He will provide in his own time. And then God raises up a king for the nation. They wanted a king like the nations. And God raises up one that is the unlikeliest of kings. He's a lamb keeper. A sheep keeper. He's a shepherd. His name's David. And he loved the Lord, but he had some egregious sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. He sins against the Lord in a huge way, but he repents. He confesses his sin. And we have that confession in the Psalms. In fact, it's Psalm chapter 51. Verse 1. David prays, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned. That's an incredible statement because remember, David basically raped a woman and killed a man. And first and foremost, he acknowledged that sin, like all sin, is first against God. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Lord, cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Well, if you're a careful reader, you would know that hyssop is a plant that you put on the end of a wooden pole. And hyssop was first used in the story of Scripture to apply the blood on the doorposts. So David prays, cleanse me with hyssop. The blood of the innocent substitute 
This hyssop was a symbol of something greater to come. And so the question again is, where is the lamb? And the answer is God himself will provide the lamb in his own time. And you have continued sin and continued idolatry and rebellion in the family of Abraham. And the people end up being just like their king, rebellious to God. And so God in judgment finally sends them to exile, removes them from their home, removes them from the promised land. And God raises up prophets Basically, lawyers of the covenant saying, listen, people of, of Abraham, you need to turn from your sin or you will continue to be judged. And they say that judgment is going to come. God is going to come back. He's going to come to his people and to his temple, and he's going to bring judgment, but he's also going to bring salvation. And so be ready. The prophets say again and again, turn from your sin. And probably the most famous is the prophet Isaiah, and probably the most famous within Isaiah is the song of the suffering servant that we see in Isaiah 52. Written 800 years or so before Jesus came, yet written as if under the cross at Golgotha. And it's starting in 52.7, we read this. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. That's the word gospel that we see so often in the New Testament. Who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And then looking over at chapter 53, verse 3, speaks of this suffering servant who would come and bring liberation to his people in bondage. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet Who of his generation protested, for he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin... He will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. So here really in the first time of the story of Scripture, we see that it is a person that is said to fulfill the task of the sacrificial lamb, the servant 
of the Lord. We need a substitute. We need one who will suffer in our place and animals won't do. But Isaiah says this one will bear our griefs. He will carry our sorrows. He will be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. His chastisement will bring us peace like a lamb that is slaughtered. The righteous one will make many righteous. Isaiah understood that God would provide a lamb. Where is this lamb? When will he come? That is the age-old question, and it's finally brought to fulfillment in first century Jerusalem. The people, the family of Abraham, are just on tiptoe with anticipation. Right about the time of the first century, there was all sorts of false prophets and false messiahs, and so there was just anticipation. When is God going to come do something? When is he going to come free us? And then the people of Abraham hear about this scraggly prophet named John. Going about preaching, saying, make a way for the Lord, which is a quotation right out of Isaiah. Saying, good news is coming again, a quotation right out of Isaiah. Making a baptism of repentance at the Jordan River, which was the very place where the people of God had crossed over into the promised land all those years ago. And John says, look, the Lamb of God, John 1.29, who takes away the sins of the world. Lamb for a man, a lamb for a house, a lamb for the nation, and a lamb for the world. This is the lamb the people of God have been waiting for. He is the one. He is the offspring of Eve who will crush the head of the serpent even though his heel would be bruised. He is the son of Abraham who will bring blessing to the nations. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul says, Christ is our Passover lamb. It is by his shed blood that the judgment of the Lord passes over us. By the shedding of blood, we are redeemed from Satan's sin and death. He is the final sacrifice because the blood of bulls and goats could never take away the sins of the world. But he's not only the lamb, he's the priest who makes the sacrifice. He has no need, though, to sacrifice for his own sin because he was without sin. Even though tempted, Hebrews 7 puts it this way, unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. So by his blood, we are cleansed. This is the true son of David whose kingdom will have no end. This is the suffering servant Isaiah spoke of 800 years ago. Condemned in our place. 1 Peter 1.19 says that we are ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. His death was what all history pointed to and it's what gives history all of its meaning. That's why the book of Revelation says that Jesus Christ was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. This was his plan to provide a lamb in his own time for the sins of the world. And then we have the lamb at the table. Jesus enters Jerusalem to head to the cross. It's not coincidental. It's Palm Sunday. It's the time of the Passover feast that the people of Abraham would celebrate every year to celebrate God's great deliverance from them. And one of the main pieces of that feast would be an unblemished lamb. 
And so there were lambs all over Jerusalem at this time, everywhere being sold. And Jesus comes, and of course, this is not coincidental. He sits to eat this Passover meal with his disciples, with the lamb there as the Passover sacrifice. But rather than partaking in the normal feast and the Jewish rituals, he has something new to say. And he says this in Luke 22. He took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So they celebrate this new covenant meal, this Passover meal. And Jesus goes on and he's betrayed. He's handed over to be crucified. And he goes to the very mountain, Mount Moriah, where Abraham was called to sacrifice Isaac all those years ago. And like Isaac, the son of God would carry his own wood to the place of sacrifice. But there would be no last minute reprieve. Not this time. There would be no ram in the thorns. Rather, his own head would be bound up in thorns. This would be the ultimate Yom Kippur, the definitive, once for all, day of atonement. Where is the lamb? God provided in his own time. And on that cross, Jesus is the mercy seat. There's this passage in Romans 3, 25, and it says Jesus, there's different translation. There's actually a lot of debate about what the word means. Is it propitiation, meaning he's a sacrifice that absorbs God's wrath, or is it expiation, meaning that God takes away our sin? Well, the word is actually used in the Old Testament to refer to the mercy seat. God put forward his son as the mercy seat. So not only is he the lamb that is sacrificed, not only is he the priest that performs the sacrifice, Jesus is the mercy seat where our sin is taken care of in both ways, just like those two goats back in Leviticus. Our sins are taken care of. God's wrath is averted, turned aside because he is the propitiation, but our sins are also taken away just like that scapegoat, God's Son becomes both the propitiation and the expiation for our sin. He takes away the wrath of God that we deserve and he removes the stain of sin. God has provided the lamb we needed. And then we see the victorious lamb. The lamb who is both redeemer and ruler. The lamb who is also a lion and the apostle John is given a vision And he sees the lamb standing as though it had been slain. Revelation 5, verse 8. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll And to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousands. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice. They were saying, worthy is the lamb 
who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen.